And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Actually, you know, this whole summer, I've been trying to show us a whole new way of living. And that's a challenge. And I've got to be honest with you. What I'm preaching this summer is a challenge for me because it is a new way of thinking. It's not the old way. The current trend of our day says that if you are struggling in your relationship, in your marriage, or with your children, the thing you do is to go through counseling. That's very, that's very trendy today. It has been for the last 25 years. And I'm not knocking counseling. If you, need, if you are having trouble in your marriage and with your children, uh, and you go to a, a counselor who is a spirit-filled counselor who will give you the Word of God, that's a good thing. But unfortunately, in our country, that's not what happens most of the time. A couple goes to the marriage counselor and walk into the office, and from that moment on, the counselor becomes a broker to negotiate a settlement whereby one or both parties modifies their behavior long enough to keep from killing each other until the next session. And then, with the hope of making enough progress over the next six months, if the counselees won't feel that they have wasted their money on the counselor. And I may have painted with a broad brush, but that pretty well resembles a dance that goes on in the modern marriage counseling industry. But here's a plain unvarnished truth. And I want to say this to all of you today. And again, I am not knocking counseling. If it is Bible-based counseling, that's great. And if you, the one thing I really want to say very plainly, if you're suffering from, a, from, a, from an emotional disorder that has psychiatric treatment and it involves a medical situation, by all means, you need to seek, you need to seek treatment and stay on your medication. I'm not talking about that kind of thing. I am talking about just plain old marriage trouble and plain trouble with relationships with your children or relationships with your parents. If you're not saved, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, as I said to you several weeks ago, by all means go the behavior modification route because that is the very best thing available to you. But I want to say to those of you who are saved and you do know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you do not have to be restricted to behavior modification. There is a power that is the power of God the Holy Spirit who lives within you, who can empower your home. Listen, beloved, this summer series is not some warmed over, used to be trendy stuff from some marriage and family guru who's on the speaking circuit today. It is a powerful new way of living. If I have a problem with the Christian community, it's with our naivete sometimes. We buy into the same things a lot of times the world was buying into 15 or 20 years ago, and someone has adapted that, put a little Jesus saves with it, has written a book and got on the speaking circuit, and suddenly that becomes part of the Christian culture. I just want to say to you, this summer series is not that kind of warmed-over way of thinking. It is a powerful new way of living. For those of you who know Jesus Christ and you are willing to trust the principle, you have the opportunity to allow the Holy Spirit to go to work in great power in your marriage. God Almighty at work in your marriage. God at work in your relationships with your kids. God at work in your relationship with your parents. And God, here's the great thing. God can do things that you may have come to believe are impossible. See, that's the thing about us as human beings. We assess our own abilities, and we assess the abilities of our spouses, the abilities of our kids, the abilities of our parents. And we look at life situations, and after a while, we, we come to believe certain things are impossible. Do you feel that sometimes? I mean, even with the best of people. I mean, you can be in a wonderful marriage, but there are actually parts of your marriage that you can give up on because you say, that's just impossible. 
My husband is who he is, and he's never going to change. My wife is who she is. She's never going to change. My parents are the same. They're never going to change. My kids are the same. They're never going to change. We're human enough that we assess each other's behavior, and we say, you know, I really think my husband doesn't have the capacity to change. I love him. He's a good man, but I just don't think he has the capacity to change. So therefore, I accept things the way they are. I think my wife is a good woman, but I just don't think she has the power to change. I don't think she has the capacity. I don't think she can change. I have come come to believe, we think, that a certain part of our marriage relationship that we had hoped for with our children is just impossible. But the great thing about bringing God into the picture, the great thing about sowing to the Spirit, which we're going to be talking about in a little bit, The great thing about that is it brings God into your marriage. And the thing about God is he can take things that are impossible and make them possible. You know who said that? Jesus said that. In Mark's gospel, chapter 10 is one of the accounts of that. And Jesus looking upon them saith, with men it is impossible, but not with God. For with God all things are possible. I'm going to talk, I'm talking about a new way of living, stopping sowing to the flesh and starting sowing to the spirit. If for no other reason, that ought to be incentive enough that just bringing God into your marriage makes all things possible. I'm preaching to some people who have given up. You say, pastor, you're preaching to Messiah Baptist church. Yes, I'm preaching to some people who have given up because even God's people sometimes give up on things. If you don't believe that, just read the Bible. The greatest preacher of the old Testament gave up and asked God to let him die. Elijah. So yeah, we're God's people, but we give up sometimes. It's too early to give up because with God, all things are possible. Well, enough introduction. I want us to take just a moment to review the principle that I've been giving to you uh, week after week throughout the summer. And by the way, my, my hope is twofold for you concerning this principle. Number one, I hope that you have committed our text verse to memory. Even if you haven't memorized every word, I pray that you've at least memorized the gist of our text. And then secondly, I pray that you're starting to put it to work. I don't know about you, but I I think about this all the time. Uh, You say, Pastor, do you always sow to the Spirit? No, I sow to the flesh sometimes. But I'll tell you what I am learning to do. I'm learning to say, "Uh uh-oh, that's a seed of the flesh, or that's a seed of the Spirit. I'm learning that. I'm getting that in my mind. So I want you to understand that when you listen to me talk, you're not listening to an expert. You're listening to a student who's one lesson ahead of you, okay? That's where I am. And so I'm learning to apply this and to think about every seed that I drop into the ground. Now, our text verse is this, Galatians chapter 6, verse 8. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction or death. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. That is the principle. Every thought, every action, every attitude, every reaction that you and I have is a seed is a seed in the soil of our life, the soil of our marriage, the soil of our relationship with our children. Every thought, every action, every attitude, every reaction is a seed that we drop in the ground. There will be a harvest. You will see that seed again. That is the principle of sowing and reaping. Remember that principle of sowing and reaping is threefold. You always reap what you sow, you always reap more than you sow, and you always reap later than you sow. Every thought, every action, every attitude is a seed. Every word I say in my family, in my marriage is a seed. I'm going to see that again. Spiritual seed is seed that is sown in obedience to the Holy Spirit. Carnal seed, that is seed that is sown 
in, uh, in response to what our flesh, our fleshly nature tells us to do. When you sow a spiritual seed, here's the great thing about it. You may say, Pastor, I have a bad marriage. No, you don't have a bad marriage. You have a bad harvest. You say, Pastor, I, have a, I, I, just, I, don't, I don't have any relationship at all with my kids. You don't have bad kids. You don't have bad parents. You have a bad harvest going on. The principle is this. When you stop sowing carnal seed and start sowing spiritual seed, even if it's, a, if it's just a small beginning, you can expect to see a harvest of hope. And so that's the thing. Spiritual seed has life in it. leads to a harvest of life. Carnal seed has death in it. It leads to a harvest of death. And Messiah, here's what I need to hear, and here's what I think we as a church need to hear. Mixed seed leads to a mixed harvest. I think that's where most of us are right there. We drop some spiritual seed in the ground, we drop some carnal seed in the ground, and we have a mixed harvest. That's just the principle. That's the way life works. And we're not being punished by God. Listen, listen to me. We're not being punished by God when in our family situation it's bad. It's not God punishing us. It's just that we've dropped a lot of bad seed in the ground and someone else in the family has dropped a lot of bad seed in the ground and we're just having a bad harvest. Now here's the challenge. Whether you're married or single, the challenge is to stop sowing the seeds of death and to start sowing the seeds of life. Today I'm going to be talking about sowing to the Spirit. And for those of you who've heard me preach through the years in these summer series, you know what I mean by this next part. This is sowing to the Spirit part one. I meant to preach the whole message today, but there's so much I can't get it all done. So we're just going to make a start. So when we get through, you won't be at the end of the sermon. We're going to start. We're going to stop right in the middle of a sermon today, and we'll go as far as we can get. But we're going to talk about sowing to the Spirit, part one. I want to go back to the Word of God and find somebody who sowed to the Spirit, and I want us to look at his life. Somebody could say, Pastor, I don't know if this Spirit-filled family living series really applies to me or not. I'm single. I'm a college-age person, or I'm in high school. I'm not sure it applies to me. Well, you're on this morning, because the guy we're going to look at today planted the spiritual seed of his life when he was single, when he was a young man. We're going to follow his life, and we're going to look at it. We're not going to get all the way through his life. We're going to just look at one episode of his life today. This is a very special man, though. We want to look at him, and there's something very special about him in the sense that He is one of those few people in the Bible who seem to play error-free ball in the game of life. One of the reasons I know the Bible is the Word of God is that it's very honest about the flaws of its heroes. Uh, God does not gloss over the mistakes and the sins of the great people in the Bible. For instance, Abraham lied. Uh, Noah got drunk. Moses lost his temper. David committed adultery. Elijah got angry at God and asked to die. Peter cursed and denied Jesus. Paul had that falling out with Barnabas and never spoke to him again. You can see what I mean. When when you look at the Bible, God is honest about the heroes. But there are a few, there are a handful of characters who get a lot of space in the Bible, but the Bible does not record anything that they did wrong. Uh, Daniel, for instance, is an example of that. These are great people. Now, we know they're sinners because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But they just pretty well play error-free ball in the game of life. And the guy we're going to look at today and next week is one of those people. Now, I got to deal with something before we go forward. Somebody could say, Pastor, wait a minute. Don't tell me about those people who live back in Bible times. You know, God did special stuff for them. Uh, if they were hungry, God rained down food out of the sky and it made water come out of the rock. And if enemies were chasing them, he just opened up red seas and got them across. And if, if there were enemies, poof, God just destroyed them. So, Pastor, don't tell me about these people who live back in Bible times. They had it easy. Well, not this guy. 
It seemed, if you follow the early part of his life, it was as if he had Murphy's Law tattooed on him. Because his, his thing was, if it could go wrong, it did go wrong. And he, he had some bad stuff that happened. But right now, we're getting to the gist of today's sermon. Because here's the thing. I, I stopped to consider a lot of the bad seed that I have dropped in the soil of my life and the relationships that I have. You know what I discovered? I discovered that a lot of the bad seed that I dropped is in reacting, reacting to the things that happened to me. Maybe something that wasn't my fault, maybe something I had no control over, maybe something that I did not expect. But I made a mistake in dropping bad seed in the ground as a reaction to that. Now listen, this is a powerful point, and I hope you get onto it this morning. Much of the bad seed people sow in a marriage and in family relationships results in two particular reactions. There are two particular reactions that lead us to drop bad seed in the soil of our lives. The first one is, I didn't deserve this, or I don't deserve this. The second one is, this is not what I expected. Now, mull that over for a moment. Those of you especially who have been married for a while, you've been married a few years, think back on the bad seed that you've sown in your marriage. Isn't it true that a lot of the bad seed that you sowed in your marriage came about as a result of the reaction that said, I don't deserve this. I don't know why I'm having to deal with this. I don't deserve this. I deserve better than this. I'm being cheated. And since I'm being cheated and no one is looking out for my interest, I'm going to have to look out for myself. And we don't articulate those kinds of feelings, but I think that they are there. Uh, it's not only that I don't deserve this, it's, you know, this is not what I expected. When I signed on for this marriage, th- this is not what I expected. I didn't expect this. When I stood at the altar and vowed my love, the pastor didn't have any vow about this. This is not what I expected. It isn't the same person I dated. Where did this jerk come from? I feel deceived. That 15-year-old brat with fuzz on his cheek is not the sweet little baby boy that I brought into this world. I was always afraid they would switch my baby at the hospital, but they didn't. They switched him in junior high. This is not what I expected. And that's when we react. We drop bad seed in the ground. See, I think as Christians, think about this for a moment. As Christians, that's where it catches us off guard. We, we read about, in the Bible about people committing sin, and so that's what we're watching out for. We don't want to commit some sin out of nowhere, but the problem is we often drop the worst seed into the soil of our lives when we're reacting to something wrong that someone else did. And that's what we're going to be talking about today because the guy that we're going to look at had a lot of I don't deserve this moments. And by the way, I think that's why it's especially applicable to us who are studying home and family issues. If you, no matter who you marry, you're going to have some I don't deserve this moments. Amen? I mean, you can marry a saint, but you're still going to have some I don't deserve this moments. You can marry the best person in the world, and you're still going to have some I didn't expect this moments. That's just a fact of life. And so we're going to look at this guy, Joseph, because he had a lot of these moments. And we're going to look at him over the next two weeks and see how he reacted, which is the key, how he reacted to these problems in life and how he won. Here's situation one. We'll look at that and we'll be through. Here's situation one. His brothers hated him. His brothers hated him. That's a family situation, family relationship. 
a bad one. His brothers hated him. Now, in Genesis chapter 37, verse 12, we read the story. I'm going to read for a few moments. Now, his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. I think he was saying that sarcastically. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Verse 31. Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. Now, church, that's not exactly a Norman Rockwell-esque picture of family life, is it? I mean, that's pretty rough. Joseph's brothers hate him, hate him enough to kill him. Now, why do they hate him? We don't know all the reasons, but if you read chapter 37, there seem to be at least three. There was a situation where Joseph was a whistleblower on what they were doing wrong. He was honest about the wrongdoing. And then he was his father's favorite. There was nothing Joseph could do about that. That was just the way it was. He was his dad's favorite. And then he had a special touch of God on his life. Joseph had dreams that one day God was going to bring him to a place of prominence. I don't know if that's everything or not. We just know that Joseph was hated by his brothers. Now, isn't that something? Think about this for a moment. There is hate in a family. I have been long amazed how that some of the strongest negative emotions can exist in a family. Have you seen that? Maybe not in your family, but in some other family. Sometimes the hottest anger can be in a family. Sometimes the darkest bitterness can be in a family. Sometimes the deepest resentment can be in a family. Anyway, that, in any event, that was the world that Joseph lived in. His brothers sold him. He went to take care of his brothers, and they sold him as a slave, as a piece of property. Now, I got thinking about Joseph this week, and you know me, I have a vivid imagination. I got thinking about how Joseph must have felt. I saw him in my mind as he has ropes around him. He is now tied up as a piece of property. He's having to walk while his new masters ride on camels. He, is, he doesn't know who he's with, does, can't speak the language, has no idea where he's going. He doesn't know if these people are going to sell him again or kill him or what. All this is happening in 24 hours. 
24 hours before, he was the fair-haired boy. He was his dad's favorite son. He was wearing a richly ornamented coat. Joseph was the fair-haired boy. And yet within 24 hours, he was a slave. I got thinking about Joseph on the way to Egypt thinking, you know, he must have thought, what happened to me? I didn't expect this. I don't deserve this. Now, here's my point this morning, church. At this very moment, when Joseph is at this situation, he is going to drop some seed into the ground. What he does at this moment is going to have long-lasting ramifications. How he reacts to what his brothers have done is going to shape and mold his life. And listen to me. You can be sure his flesh was talking to him. Amen? I mean, we've lived long enough to know what your flesh would say in a situation like that. And here's what I think his flesh said. Joseph's flesh told him, become a perpetual victim. Become a perpetual victim. You have a whole new status now. Boy, you are part of a victim group. And this affords you all kinds of possibilities. I think Joseph's flesh told him, son, you have an excuse for doing anything else that your flesh tells you to do. You can curl up into a ball and die of self-pity if you want to because you are a victim. You can get mad at the world, join a street gang, and terrorize a neighborhood because you are a victim. You can hold that anger inside, store it up, and try to take it out on anybody who tries to get close to you because you are a victim. You can check out on life and dull the pain with drugs and alcohol because you are a victim. I am convinced that's what Joseph's flesh told him. Do the, do the smart thing. Be a perpetual victim. And by the way, do you see the principle that I'm trying to lay down this morning? That's how we drop bad seed in the ground in reaction. The drugs, the alcohol, the self-pity, all these things that we're talking about would have been a reaction to what someone else did to him. And I meet people like that every day of the week into all kinds of harmful behavior, into all kinds of harmful attitudes. And yet when I ask them why they're doing what they're doing, it's because of something that someone else did to them. And they give me stories that say, I didn't deserve it. I didn't expect it. But hear me well today, church. Joseph's brothers had the power to hurt him. But only Joseph had the power to make himself a perpetual victim. And it's the same with you. I mean, I I know I'm preaching to people who have been hurt today. I mean, you wouldn't have a crowd this size without having someone here who was hurt very badly. I'm sure we have someone here today, if not several, who were physically abused. And there are probably some of you here today with with perhaps the darkest tragedy that can happen to anyone. There may be someone here today who was sexually abused as a child. There, there There are people here today who have been in a marriage with a husband or a wife who has continuously put you down. I know I'm preaching to some people who have been through some hard things. But beloved, let me tell you something. Nobody can make you a perpetual victim but you. You're the only one who can do that. And the thing I see about Joseph is Joseph chose not to become a perpetual victim. I mean, I'll be the first to to give, give Joseph permission to feel badly about what his brothers did. I mean, he was indeed a victim, but he chose not to be a perpetual victim. See, Joseph, Joseph hung on to something. Joseph knew that God had a plan for his life. He didn't have the Bible. He didn't have the book of Genesis. He certainly didn't have the book of Jeremiah. But he understood the truth of Jeremiah 29, verse 11, 
where the writer says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Joseph rejected the pull of his flesh because he chose to believe God's message of blessing on his life. And there are people I I know who are born-again children of God, and they let the past define them. Things that happened to them in their past, abuses that happened in their past 20 and 30 years ago, in their minds, those things that happened still define them. Let me plead with you to say, even if you have been victimized, don't let the past define you. Let the blessings of God define you. Joseph made a choice. He made a choice to drop spiritual seed in the ground, even on the road to Egypt. Yes, his brothers hated him. Yes, they sold him. Yes, he didn't deserve it. Yes, he expected something else. But he was not going to let what they did to him define him. He was committed to believing the blessings of God. And I like to think about this too. Joseph did not confuse a temporary setback with his final destination. On the road to Egypt, as a slave, with ropes around his hand, Joseph didn't look at that and say, I'm going to be here the rest of my life. He believed that God was going to take care of him. And beyond that, let me say this. Even though this situation was going to take Joseph to a place that he never dreamed of going, Egypt, he decided to continue dropping spiritual seed in the ground. Let's take just a few moments and read some more. Look in Genesis chapter 39, verses 1 through 6. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian, who was one of Pharaoh's officials, captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. You see how the principle is working? I mean, Joseph is saying, okay, I didn't plan to be a slave. I didn't plan to go to Egypt, but this is where life has put me. So what am I going to do? I'm not going to drop negative seeds in the ground. I'm not going to be a perpetual victim. I'm going to drop spiritual seed in the ground. So he begins to work hard. And as he works hard, what happens? What happens? God blesses him. And as God blesses, blesses him, he gets promoted in the strangest of all places. He finds himself working for the top general in Egypt. And after a while, this general promotes Joseph so that Joseph is making every decision that goes on in his estate. That's spiritual seed, folks. Life is going to put you in some places that you don't deserve. Life is going to give you some things that you didn't expect. We've lived, those of you who are my age, you've lived long enough to see that. You've lived long enough to understand that some of your dreams are not going to materialize the way you thought they were going to. And you've lived long enough to know that not all the things that happen to you are things that you deserve. Sometimes life puts you in a spot where you have to deal with something that you did not deserve. But the challenge at that moment is not to drop seeds of sin into the ground, but to drop spiritual seed in. Because here is the thing. God can still bring you a harvest of life no matter where you are. 
Don't give up. Don't quit. And don't say, well, here I am, I'm 45 years old and my life is not what I expected. Here I am, I'm 60 years old and life is not coming out like I materialize, like I, not materializing like I planned. If that's the case, go ahead and drop spiritual seed in the ground because wherever you are, even if you're a slave in Egypt, God can still give you a harvest of life. Galatians 6 verse 8, the Bible says, the one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. That's the principle. If you sow seeds of life, there's a harvest of life. If you sow seeds of death, there is a harvest of death. Somebody could say this morning, Pastor, I am really trying to sow seeds of life, but I am not seeing anything happen. Do you know the very verse that comes after our verse principle. Galatians 6 verse 9 says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. If we do not give up. Say, Pastor, what are you saying to me? Just simply this. You're going to be in a lot of spots in life that you didn't plan for. There are going to be things happen to you that you don't deserve. Don't give up. Keep planting spiritual seed. You will reap a harvest at the proper time if you don't give up. That's what Joseph is teaching us. Don't give up. Don't say it's fatally flawed. No, because it's in the hands of the one who can do the impossible. Don't say it's not what I expect. It'll never happen. No, you put your life in the hands of the one who can do the impossible. With men, it's impossible, yeah. With men, you might as well give up on your marriage. With men, you might as well give up on your kids. With men, you might as well give up on your dreams. But if you're sowing to the Spirit, you have brought the one into your home and family who can do the impossible. Don't give up. Keep holding on. Let's pray. Before I pray this morning, with every head bowed and every eye closed, I want to do more than just pray in a, in a non-specific way. In the anonymity of this moment with no one looking around, I wonder here today if there is someone who would say, Pastor, I'm in that spot right now. I'm in a spot where I'm dealing with things that I didn't expect, came out of nowhere, or I'm dealing with something I didn't deserve. Preacher, I'm having a hard time dropping spiritual seed in the ground right now. I know how that feels because I'm there too sometimes. You just want me to pray for you. They say, Preacher, I'm just, life has put me in a spot right now. I didn't expect this. I didn't deserve it. But I want to drop spiritual seed in the ground. I want to, even if I'm a slave in Egypt, so to speak, I want to drop spiritual seed in the ground. Would you pray for me? And I do want to pray for you. Would you just hold your hand up for a moment, wherever you are in the auditorium? Would you just hold your hand up for a moment? I'll scan the audience. Father, you see the many, many hands of your people. Father, we want to follow the example of Joseph. And even when we have these moments of injustice, we want to keep our eyes on you because we well understand that our sense of well-being doesn't come from the perpetrator stopping the damage. Our sense of well-being comes from you, the sovereign God, working in our situation. Help us all 
to drop the right kind of seed. Satan is so deceptive, Father. And our flesh screams at us. Our flesh screams at us to become victims. Help us to hear the still small voice of your Holy Spirit saying, hold on. Well, God, we do want to believe you. We want to trust you. And now, Lord, I pray that there are those here today who, if they have not yet received Jesus as their Savior, they will come today and accept him, give him the hearts and lives so that they'll have a powerful living outside of themselves. I pray, Father, for those who might, you might have led to be part of our church fellowship, that they'll come with confidence today, knowing that they are part of a church family that wants to please you and serve you. And Father, there may be those today who have a burden that may have nothing to do with the service at all, but they just have a burden on their hearts. Maybe a burden that has to do with physical illness or just a financial challenge. Or maybe there's a lost loved one or a lost friend that they're burdened about and they want to come and kneel before you. I pray that you'll hear their prayers and give them the request of their hearts as you did for Hannah of old. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand to your feet? This is the time to do business with God. If you have a decision to make, I'll be here at the front. If you have a burden that's on your heart and you want to pray, that's what this altar is for. Just slip out of your seat and bring that burden to the Lord.